Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mr. McCarthy doesn't have the votes today. He will not have the votes tomorrow, and he will not have the votes next week, next month, next year. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. I'm pretty sure I've never taken 14 L's in anything else in my life. I'm Nick Severi. Well, if you heard the clip at the top of the program, according to Matt Gates, uh, he, somebody is not speaker. Uh, on the program today, Kevin McCarthy is obviously the new speaker of the House. You know what? Didn't take that long either. Uh, Nick and I will look back at the week that was last week on Capitol Hill. Plus, later on in the program, our friend El Paso Times immigration reporter Lauren Villagran, she's going to break down the latest happening at our U.S. southern border. President Biden was just down there this week. Lauren's going to take us through what she's hearing and seeing on the ground. Title 42, some of the new stuff that has happened with that law and what's gone into effect. All of it, Lauren, in our next segment, she does a fantastic job helping us break it all down. Um, Nick, haven't said hello to you in a while. First, before I do say hello to you, uh, last week when we were recording our episode, we were talking about Buffalo Bills player that got hurt in the Monday night game. And hurt is probably the lightest word I could use there because the man almost lost his life. If you don't know the story of DeMar Hamlin, uh, the former six round pick out of Pittsburgh University, University of Pittsburgh, excuse me, and uh, Bill's safety that collapsed to the ground and had a cardiac arrest episode. He had to be resuscitated on the field, taken to a local Cincinnati hospital. Since then, it's been such a cool week just to see the outpouring of love and support. His foundation has gotten over $7 million in donations to it. But more importantly, he's off a breathing tube. He's talking. He's FaceTimed with his teammates. 
He's uh, been tweeting and posting messages on Instagram. The Bills won their game this past week. Uh, so on the up and up for this player who, you know, as of Monday night, Nick and I kind of glazed over because when we were not really glazed over, but like we were we were talking as this was happening and unfolding. We didn't know anything about it. And all of a sudden now, you know, the events that have preceded this week since we last recorded. Good to hear that Demar Hamlin is doing well. Um, and then the other major story that's been breaking out, if you haven't been paying attention to what's happened in Brazil, as a lot of former President Bolsonaro's uh, supporters stormed their capital, the presidential palace there in Brasilia, um, damaging property over you know three or four thousand protesters. I think as of this taping, as reported by BBC News, were smashing property, government property, fighting with. Uh, police officers there. Um, sounds eerily similar to something happening here in 2021. I can't put my finger on it, but um, we're going to be covering that story and talking to somebody down there in Brazil about all of this because the parallels are are eerily similar. We posted something on our Instagram account uh, from Eamon Mohideen, who ha- uh, posted a video of just the two side by side. What happened on January 6, 2021? What happened on January 8, 2023 in Brazil? Scary stuff happening around the world. Now I say hello to you, Nick Saveri. Uh, how are you? Oh, I mean, we were been texting back and forth about this Brazil thing. This is wild if for the people that haven't seen it. I mean, it, it's eerily similar. It's the same thing. Not eerily similar. Bolsonaro and Trump are friends. His supporters uh, believe the election is stolen and believe the, the former president, who's now current president of Brazil, Lula, uh, stole the election. So it's pretty much the same thing. It's just a different flag color. Uh, your, your thoughts on some of this stuff. And, and hello to you. How's everything going your way? It's good. You know, um, you know, on the subject of DeMar Hamlin, it's it's sad in that it took something like that to really bring people together. Um, Oftentimes, social media can be a really divisive place. And there's very little things as Americans we agree on at this point. But what I did see this week was the outpouring of support uh, for Hamlin and his family. Uh, Obviously, the uh, toy donation that he's a part of as well. Um, And it was cool to see even seeing a player, a former player on a network, like, oh, just praying out loud. And that's a it was fascinating to see it, you know, but it, it just brought people together. I had yet to see an opposing view of that other than the the question of you know when does this game get played like you know and that was a whole thing with one guy around that but other than that just a lot of positivity it should not have taken someone nearly dying for that to happen and that's always the case with humans sadly um and on that subject of sadness you know in terms of brazil um yeah it you know when you you and i were texting about that and i mean it was it's almost two years to the day and the precedent has been set. Um, I think about also a video that you had sent me about a woman who was talking about a mass, sh- not mass. Sh- wow. So I'm so conditioned to say that now, but there's right. um, a shooting of a teacher from a six-year-old. You're bringing a, a gun to school. You know, and in the clip, she talks about America not being a place she wants to live and that she's here, you know, not by her own choice. And I think about Brazil in this case, because, you know, we're starting to set a precedent as a country of not being the greatest country on earth. I don't think we've been that way for a while. And I I think it's a foolish idea to think of a place being that, but you know, we've set a really dangerous precedent. Um, What I, one of the things that's come up a lot is because of how we've handled January 6th and the person who essentially called for it 
you know, the former president, Donald Trump, not being brought to justice. A lot of hand wringing from the Justice Department. Uh, and, we, and I'm not the only person saying that you can go look at, you know, some of the things that Ellie Honing has said uh, about, you know, the Justice Department, you know, CNN uh, legal contributor. But we as a country haven't done enough to some extent, because let's also remember there have been numerous arrests. We just had the January 6th commission. I mean, we've certainly done a lot as a country, but to the outside world, Mike, it doesn't look like there was something done in a way that really put that put down the notion that if you do this in your own country, like we did here, there will be there will be strict punishment to it. And Brazil saw that, and you know, supporters of that, um, you know, former leader, you know, feel that they're empowered to do that. And I guess that's fine. We'll see how the just how justice is handed out in Brazil. But we are still in a dangerous place where we just have pl- parts of the world now where people will not believe in free elections. They don't believe in the results of them unless it benefits them. And that's just a dangerous and scary place to be in because I don't think Brazil will be the last country where we see essentially another version of January 6th. Yeah. Well, I mean, we saw what happened in Myanmar where, you know, the president was duly elected and then the military decided they had enough of that. And then there was protests in the streets and, and, and um, obviously the, the president is still under arrest, I believe. I mean, again, so much things happening in the world out there. There's been um, articles written about the rise of authoritarianism and, you know, really extreme um, right wing ideology. We saw in Italy with the prime minister who was elected there. Uh, we're seeing what's happening in Israel with Netanyahu's cabinet and guys he's putting in positions of power, very similar to like the Stephen Millers of the world and Steve Bannon's of the world here in America. So it transitions perfectly into our first segment because uh, if you missed what played out last week, now that Republicans have control uh, of, of the House of Representatives, they need to elect a leader, right? And Speaker McCarthy was put up for nomination a bunch of different times, 15 in total. And on the 15th vote, he won enough votes uh, to become Speaker of the House, winning on 216 people supporting him because a few folks like Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert voted present. If you missed all of what happened last week, uh, let me take you through some of it because basically the new house had not been sworn in yet until a speaker of the house uh, has been chosen. And the Republican party put up Kevin McCarthy. There was a strong group of about 20 freedom caucus uh, comprising Republicans. You know who these usual suspects are, the Lauren Boberts of the world, Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, Louis Gomer, and the like. And all of them had said they would not vote for Speaker McCarthy unless he made some concessions. Matt Gates being probably the most extreme, saying he would never vote for him and he wouldn't have the votes, as you heard in the clip at the top of the show. But after uh, a bunch of negotiation, and we're going to play some clips of some of these folks saying what some of the negotiation and what they ended up winning in exchange for this, uh, on Friday night, late night, around 11.30 p.m., Speaker McCarthy was able to get 216 votes and secure it. Take a listen to a little bit uh, of some of the speeches uh, from Friday night, if you missed it. The next speaker of the 118th Congress, Kevin McCarthy. That was easy, huh? <laughs> and now the hard work begins. What we do here today, next week, next month, Next year, we'll set the tone for everything that follows. I know the night is late, but when we come back, our very first bill will repeal the funding for 87,000 new hours. So you heard there already, 
some of the things that are going to be huge talking points in this upcoming session over the next two years as Republicans control the House. He's talking about that bill uh, to repeal uh, the Biden administration and the, the 87,000 IRS agents that were hired as part of this workforce uh, in the previous Congress. Um, then there's going to be a bunch of other stuff that's going to start to come out in terms of voting on different things. Um, you know, I, well, first, let's start with the, the procedural part of this before we get into some of the clips of what some of these other folks wanted. Um, Nick, you saw some of this and you and I have been texting back and forth about this as there was a fourth vote, a fifth vote, a sixth vote, a seventh vote. Uh, and, and my wife said it to me and I want to bring it onto the show because I thought it was really funny. As we're watching this stuff play out and late into the evening Friday, she's like, this is why I think people get frustrated politics because none of this makes sense. And I, my counter to her was, you're right. This is all procedural. These guys and gals all saying that this is democracy in action. No, it's not. This is the equivalent of we're about to play a game on the playground and we need you to just pick team captains. And we're taking forever to pick team captains. But the game is the one that's we're wasting time. We're running out of time. We're running out of daylight to be able to play this game. This is just a procedural stuff. Pick captains. Let's do this already. And so um, and, and unfortunately, not only was is that wasting taxpayer dollars, right? This procedural part of this, is it democratic in process? Sure, because we're picking and voting on somebody. We're all putting a name to it. Sure. But it's not, it's not democracy in action. It's just not. In my opinion, it's just not. It's a procedural thing. This is an administrative thing. Like, let's just pick one guy. We all vote for him or gal and let's get this moving. And so I just thought that that was so funny because I feel like there are other people that are going to be out there that are saying, I don't, I don't get this. And what does this mean? Because now these committees and some of the stuff, the concessions that Kevin McCarthy has made has really put his role at risk, says the wrong thing. And there could be a vote that could be put up to take him out as being Speaker of the House. What were some of your takeaways uh, of the week that fo- unfolded last week and, and all the different vote tries? And then eventually what we're going to get to in a second some of the concessions that Speaker McCarthy ended up making to his Freedom Caucus. You know, I I actually took a different view than where you and your wife landed. Um, you know, to me, it, it did feel like democracy. Um, what happened was, in my view, is that the House Freedom Caucus recognized that they that the likely leader isn't going to get 218 votes. Now, one of the fascinating things is that in the end, he got 216. Right, well, it was less than 218. Well, throughout the week, you know, when you had members of members of the House leave the room and if a vote took place, it suddenly reduced how many votes he needed. It was a fascinating study in in civics. Um, But to the point you both were bringing up, you know, it is a little silly because for these 15 people at the time, originally 15, they obviously didn't have someone. There really wasn't a serious candidate that they were putting up. They were rotating between all of them. You know, we saw uh, Jim Jordan at some point get some support. One at one time, the former president uh, Donald Trump was you know thrown up there for a nomination with only one vote. So there was no serious candidate that they were going to put forward. But what they were doing is they were obstructing. You know, they wanted to make it clear that this will not be a layup for Kevin McCarthy, and they were going to keep pushing it. Now, what I wonder, of course, is you know how many more votes would have taken before this happens, and in the end. The thing about this case of democracy is in the end, they were successful because when you look, we'll get into the concessions in a moment, but some of the critical things that they wanted, which I would argue are pretty foolhardy in the end is what they're going to get. So in the end, they stand stood united. The bigger precedent, though, 
is what something that you and I have noted for a while now on this show about party unity. You know, when we started this show in 2020, you know, we thought we had observed Democrats, you know, coming together behind Joe Biden. And in the end, Biden wins the election. And then we saw, of course, uh, in 2022, you know, Republicans had predicted a red wave, a massive success, you know, taking back the House and potentially the Senate. And in the end, it wasn't actually as big a, a legislature a um, election victory. Uh, it was actually more so for the Democrats. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is the Democratic Party seemed to not seems is far more united, which is probably the most party unity I've seen in a long time, you know, from the left. And it was interesting to see it. Couldn't contrast that by what we just saw unfold. You know, in the end, McCarthy makes a couple of deals that allows him to get the speakership. But at what cost? The other thing to consider here, too, is that moderate Republicans who are some in many ways not really fans of some of these concessions would very likely potentially vote with Democrats on some of these matters. And it's going to be really interesting over the next two years. Where is this house going to go? Because McCarthy makes these concessions. And let's just go ahead and take the cat out of the bag for a minute. One of the most important is that previously you needed five members of the House of Representatives to come forward for a vote of no confidence. Now you just need one. So you've already put yourself, if you're the Speaker of the House, into jeopardy by potentially running, running up against or pushing back on something that you know these 15 members uh, or more you know, of the House Freedom Caucus wants. So they're going to continue to really have him in a vice grip for the next couple of years. But Mike, something I want to read to you, you and the listeners and, and viewers um, is from an opinion piece from Fareed Zakaria. Uh, I think he'd written this for, I believe it was the Washington Post, or I may be wrong in the publication. Um, but this is an important detail about popularism, because what the House Freedom Caucus likes to say is that you know, they're a party of the people very similar to the Tea Party. But in summary of what's been happening the last couple of days, this is an excerpt from what he wrote. It begins, why is this happening? Populism thrives as an opposition movement. It denounces the establishment, encourages fears and conspiracy theories about nefarious ruling elites, and promises emotional responses rather than actual programs, such as building a wall, banning immigration, stopping trade. But once in government, the shallowness of its policy proposals is exposed, and its leaders can't blame others as easily. Meanwhile, if non-populist forces are sensible and actually get things done, they defang some of the populist right. We're about to see if uh, Mr. Zakari is correct, because what we're going to see from this Republican, this now Republican leadership with these concessions to what the House Freedom Caucus wanted is going to be an interesting study, because one of the other things that's coming up is, you know, we're hearing a lot of talk about reducing debt, you know, putting, you know, ending the debt ceiling or putting a serious clamp on it and potentially reducing government spending. And one of the places they're talking about is, is defense, which almost n- never has any cuts to it. It's usually greenlit by both parties. So um, I, in short, it's going to be a fascinating two years, needless to say. But um I think what we just saw this week was a really interesting turn uh, for people getting what they want, not to mention um, you know, some of these appointments, which you know, in terms of like leading committees, which is going to be comedy, by the way. We're going to have on this show tons of clips because heaven forbid someone like a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Louis Gohmert gets to be head of these committees. It's going to be pure comical theater because they don't really honestly know what they're talking about. And that's evidenced by some of the things that they were asking for. Yeah. I mean, some of these committees and you just heard them there. 
the applause that he got about the first thing, the first bill that they would look at repealing um, once the new Congress uh, takes hold this coming Monday. Well, obviously, we're on a Monday if you're listening to us right now. Um, one of the things I wanted to say was uh, Nolan McCaskill, our buddy over at the L.A. Times, a fantastic congressional reporter who was covering all this. You can check out some of the articles that he's written about all of this, what this means now, the whole process of last week. Uh, I want to get into the concessions real quick and get your reaction because you you said it earlier about previously you needed five members that could call for a motion to vacate the speaker's chair. And it, in essence, you know, puts Kevin McCarthy's seat at risk because now that is only down for one person, one person out of the 221 R's in the House of Representatives that has an issue with Kevin McCarthy on some type of motion can easily uh, put, put this into effect to, to have the speakership vacated. Um, a lot of the concessions that he made, according to Axios, includes a rule that says that any move to raise the debt ceiling must also be accompanied by spending cuts. That's going to come up in the next couple of you know weeks, months. And we'll be covering that, obviously, because how we pay our bills and defaulting on our bills is a huge thing. We haven't this hasn't happened since 2011 uh, during the Obama administration. Um, there's a rules package that includes a resolution establishing a House Select Committee on the weaponization of the federal government. Oh, I can't wait to see what that committee does in action. And, you know, for more on this, why don't we take a listen to Representative Matt Gates? He was at the forefront, almost leading this pack of 20 folks, very outspoken uh, about not having Kevin McCarthy represent, uh, you know, House Republicans as Speaker of the House. He was on with our buddy Mike Emanuel this past Sunday on Fox News Live after Kevin McCarthy obviously became Speaker of the House. Take a listen to what he said. So is it worth it all going 15 rounds to elect a speaker? Absolutely. We got concessions that really were being rejected as early as Monday when it comes to being able to read legislation 72 hours before its adoption, individual appropriations bills, mm -hmm. and ultimately what we negotiated ensures that we will never again have a circumstance like this omnibus spending legislation because bills will have to comport to a single subject. There will be germanity requirements on amendments. And so it's going to be an open process, a transparent process. I'm thrilled at where the House of Representatives is today. It also gives lawmakers 72 hours to review bills before they come to the House floor. I think he mentioned some of that. Uh, some of the concessions also reinstates this Holman rule, H-O-L-M-A-N, for those spelling at home, uh, which lets lawmakers amend appropriations legislation and reduce the salary of government officials. That's something he didn't mention there. Uh, he talked about voting individually on the 12 appropriation bills rather than one big ominous bill, which we didn't cover uh, because of the holiday break. And that is one of the big uh, outcries from Republicans is that Democrats do tend to pack a lot of things into bills to boost spending. And then it's like, well, now we're spending X, Y, Z on something that shouldn't be a part of what this bill is named after. Right. Um, all right. So some of your takeaways, uh, Nick, on Matt Gates and the concessions that he just talked about, because it is going to affect, uh, you know, what we're seeing here with Kevin McCarthy. It's like he's just being put up as the sacrificial lamb. What he says, you know, speakers are supposed to really rein in their conference and really lead the path of these next two years. And he's not going to really lead the path of these next two years if he doesn't go in the way of one or two members from this conference saying, hey, he's not doing it right. Let's call in a motion to vacate the speakership. What do you make of of what uh, Representative Gates just said there? 
You know, the funny thing is I heard both him from this clip, obviously, but I also heard Congresswoman Boebert, you know, from Colorado. You know, the funny thing is I found myself agreeing with it a little bit. You know, I, I actually, I'm also one that questions government spending. You know, I know on this show, I tend to be, you know, painted with a, a blue brush and that's fair, but I, like anyone else, I maintain a budget in my home with my spouse. Um, we're always asking ourselves, you know, where's the money going? What are we, you know, what are we earning? What are we spending? Right. And you make individual decisions on these massive purchases that you make. Could be appliances, could be a house, you know, all those things. So if we want to go ahead and look at a large spending package and break it up into, in this case, 12 individual things, great. I'm all for it. The problem I always will have with with this attitude from Republicans is, first off, let's also notice something. If you were to look at the debt ceiling in terms of constantly raising it in order to you know, basically keep expanding the budget, it went up during Donald Trump's presidency too. I didn't hear anyone from the Freedom Caucus talk about that. It's always been constantly about the current president. In fact, the debt ceiling continues has continued to go up after several presidents. So what the Freedom Caucus is saying is that they want to be able to limit spending. But what I'm curious about is if I were to start looking into where their campaign donations come from, obviously you're going to choose to spend money on certain things. And that's where as citizens, we have to be informed about that. Because to the Matt Gates and the Lauren Boberts of the world, you can say you don't want to you want to cut spending. But where are you going to cut it? Because I know what we remember in the Wisconsin Senate race that Ron Johnson had talked about cutting into Social Security. Now, in the end, you know, he narrowly beat Mandela Barnes. But is that is this where we're heading? Is Are we heading in the direction of cutting into entitlements, which is fascinating to me that you'd be crazy enough as a party to start cutting into the spending of some of the most vulnerable citizens in our country? Um, but in, in isolation, I think it's a great concept. I would gladly, as an informed voter, look at all these individual packages and make decisions. But even if that's the case, what is going to get cut and what are we actually investing our money in? And Republicans like to put themselves as the party of cutting spending, but the money, you know, the debt ceiling goes up with Republican presidents, just like Democratic presidents. So I'm just interested in where this group of people, the Freedom Caucus, who are now obviously playing a large role in decision making, where they want to invest their money, because it can't be in nowhere, because no political party ever gets far doing that. So where where do those cuts begin? See, I'm on the opposite side of this, not not so much about budget and spending and stuff like that. I tend to agree a little bit with what representatives talking about, just like you said, I'm down. Let's not cram it all. Let's let's separate it and itemize it. Right. Uh, Totally get all of that. However, the committee's part of this, the word transparency that he said, we've talked about this before. Not everything is an R&D association. It's right, wrong. So if we're doing things like Hunter Biden, which is already who's already currently under investigation by a government agency, right? If we're going to start opening committees into things like that, and we're going to just like Speaker McCarthy said about repealing the 87,000 IRS agents, we're going to start opening some of these committees into you know some things that don't make sense or are wasting taxpayer dollars. That's where voters need to uh, listen up to uh, in, the, in the next two years, because if you're seeing these committees start to pop up, and I just mentioned one of them before, I don't even remember the name of it right now, but I just mentioned one before that I was like, I can't wait to hear what that, oh, here it is, the weaponization of the federal government. That's a committee that they're trying to establish 
a, a, a weaponization of the federal government. How are you how are you supposed to investigate yourself <laughs> in, that, in that committee? Uh, real quick, before we go to the break here, one thing that did uh, make the rounds across social media on Friday. Again, this all kind of squeezed in late Friday night. If you weren't up at 1, 1 a.m. watching C-SPAN, I don't blame you. OK, so you may have missed some of this. And this is probably the beauty of, of social media at times was minority leader Hakeem Jeffries made a speech towards the end before he turned it over to Speaker McCarthy and introduced him. And he kind of closed out the session doing a little A to Z about some of the things that House Democrats stand for. Nick, I want you to take a listen to this. House Democrats will always put American values over autocracy, benevolence over bigotry, the Constitution over the cult, democracy over demagogues, economic opportunity over extremism, freedom over fascism, governing over gaslighting, hopefulness over hatred, inclusion over isolation, justice over judicial overreach, knowledge over kangaroo courts, liberty over limitation, maturity over Mar-a-Lago, normalcy over negativity, opportunity over obstruction, people over politics, quality of life issues over QAnon, reason over racism, substance over slander, triumph over tyranny, understanding over ugliness, voting rights over voter suppression, working families over the well-connected, xenial over xenophobia, yes we can over you can't do it, and zealous representation over zero-sum confrontation. All right, listen, not to, Love throw, it. Not to throw cold water uh, on that, okay? Some of those don't make sense. Uh, the triumph over over tyranny that didn't make sense. Could have found another. T- you could have found another T word to replace that. You got it. If you're gonna do back and forth, it's got to be something that's the opposite of that. Uh, the voter rights over voter suppression. That was great. Okay, um, but listen, if you heard the person yelling in the background of that, that was Representative Jamal Bowman, who's been on this podcast. You could take a listen to the interview we did with him a few. Uh, weeks ago when he came on the program shout out to him um i was th- that speech a lot of that stuff you know like i mentioned it fell on deaf ears because <clears throat> a half the room doesn't really care about some of that stuff and b that was at 1 a.m on c-span and 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 i don't even know if cnn and the major networks were carrying speeches i have to imagine that they were but i wasn't awake right and unless you live on the west coast and you were watching c-span or cnn on a friday night you know, that stuff, uh, you may have lost missed that last week. You may not have heard a speech like that that really targeted a bunch of the things that the House Democrats will stand for. Right. Which is trying to get uh, some things that he mentioned there in the alphabetical rhyme there. There are some things there that you could potentially get some moderate Republicans to buy into and get enough votes to pass in the House and move over to a Democratic led Senate. What do you make of that speech real quick before we go to the break? You know, we've talked about messaging, and you're right. I think some of those, um, you know, alliterations, maybe not the best. We stand on the precipice, however, of two years of Democrats perhaps improving their messaging, because what what Congressman Jeffries just did was let it be known that Democrats are going to be 
very open about where they stand on all these things. Your maturity over Mar-a-Lago, like we know where this is going, obviously. So, yeah, I I thought he was great all week, actually. Um, I think he presents a really positive and powerful face for for the minority party right now. Um, And their their leadership's in good hands. You know, I agree with you. I mean, in terms of an effective speech, it's a great clip like you just played on this show and others have done it too. Um, I don't, it doesn't make much of a difference, but what I do think it does set the tone of is that, and we actually, even before this happened, we saw this earlier in the week and even last week when Congressman Jeffries was talking about the Republican infighting, you know, and one thing I think he's done a great job and I, and I think we're going to see other members of the Democrats do this is really point to the circus that we see from Republicans. And this is important because from a messaging standpoint, as a party, they've struggled with being able to look at the other side and in plain spoken English say, that's crazy on that side of the, of the aisle. Are you good with that in your district or in your state? And I think that's the opportunity that the Democrats have. Not the most effective speech, but I think it just certainly paints the picture of what the Democrats are, are comfortable having a little fun with over the next two years. No, you're right. I mean, he got 212 votes every single time uh, when it came up to vote uh, when they were voting for House Speaker. Um, so they certainly look unified in on that front. And the messaging, like you said, uh, keep pointing out the flaws of the other team that can't even pick out their team captain. Uh, we leave it there. More on, obviously, all of this and the news uh, of whatever the House does over the next couple of weeks with respect to what Kevin McCarthy mentioned there. When we come back after the break, uh, Lauren Villagrand, she's a fantastic immigration reporter over at the El Paso Times. She's been on this program before, friend of the show. Uh, She's going to be breaking down everything happening at our southern border, the stuff that you may have missed during the holidays with all the migrants that were stuck in El Paso, Texas. Obviously, she's based in El Paso, Texas. And then recently, President Biden finally made his way to the U.S. southern border, right? Is it? What does that all entail? What did the president do while he was there? We're going to find out with Lauren when we come back after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. 
This episode of Can We Please Talk, as always, is presented by the good folks over at Fresh Roasted Coffee. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today since 2009. These folks have been putting the good stuff out there in coffee and tea. You can head to freshroastedcoffee.com today as a Can We Please Talk listener. Enter in the promo code Can We Get 20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Nick, tell the people how good Fresh Roasted Coffee is. I say it enough, folks. If you are a coffee drinker, and of course you are a tea drinker, they got you covered. Go there, take the quiz, learn about your flavor type, and get on this amazing train of goodness that is Fresh Roasted Coffee. That's right. Freshroastedcoffee.com. Today, promo code can we get 20 at checkout, 20% off your first purchase. All right, Lauren Via Grand joins us here from the El Paso Times. She's a fantastic immigration reporter covering everything happening at our U.S. southern border. She's been on the show before. She joins us again. Lauren, Mike, and Nick, thank you so much for hopping back on the podcast with us. Yeah, thanks, guys. Lauren, you know, I purposely, because, because of you and our relationship with you, I purposely have ignored a lot of the news that has happened over the last couple of weeks with respect to the border. I wanted to kind of ask you a bunch of different questions and here and there saw certain things like the president obviously making a trip to our southern border, which hasn't happened in over a decade. Um, for our listeners right now that are listening to the show, during the holiday break, you know, obviously there was news that was happening at the southern border with migrants. And then you had the weather patterns that were um, freezing cold temperatures. And there's all these visual images of migrants sleeping on the streets. What's Can you summarize for our audience that's tuning in, like, what is the latest and what happened during the, the last months over the holiday break with the surge of migrants, specifically in El Paso? Yeah, sure. So it goes a little bit before that. I mean, you could actually go back many years, but I won't do that to you. But what I can tell you that El Paso has seen, certainly since the spring, summer, is ebbing and flowing of waves of migration to this particular border crossing point. And there are a lot of different factors that have gone into it. But to really kind of get to the point of what made El Paso a national story is that in late November, early December, the Border Patrol was encountering upwards of 2,500 migrants per day um, on average, which was just a historically high number and a number that made it very difficult for the city to um, absorb uh, the needs that, that everyone had because the majority of the folks who were coming were not uh, folks who were crossing the border or sneaking over the border and trying to evade border patrol apprehension. They were literally waiting in line, hoping to seek asylum or some other immigration relief and were being processed in and released to the community by border patrol. And El Paso has a long history of welcoming migrants. And we have uh, a shelter network in the region that will take people in give them a place to stay, a warm meal, and they would get on their way. But what was happening this past fall and into December is that folks were arriving who had no destination in the U.S. They didn't have a sponsor. They didn't even know where they were going. They had truly no resources. And so that put in an increased burden on the city. And, and yeah, El Paso became a, a national story. Laura, from just your reporting historically, you were alluding to a moment ago about, um, you know, there's layers to this from a historical standpoint. 
in your reporting, just from what you understand, what seems to be causing this recent surge, you know, specifically not just El Paso, but um, what we've seen in terms of the uptick of, of those seeking um, admittance into the United States? You know, I, I took a really big step back with my editor recently to try to answer that question because it's so easy to get caught in the news cycle of the particular nationality who is arriving at the southern border, whether, you know, last year uh, it was a large number of Haitians. Before that, it was a large number of Central Americans. This year, it's been a large number of people from, from Venezuela, Cuba, and now Nicaragua. So, but if you take a way, way bigger step back, you have to look at the nature of border enforcement, that for decades and decades, it was all about border patrol apprehending mostly adult, almost entirely adult migrants, almost, I mean, majority men looking for work. And so the entire border enforcement apparatus was set up to catch people trying to sneak over the border. Now, again, there's context there because um, in the old days, so to speak, let's talk about like the 90s or the 2000s, you're talking about a majority of of Mexican migrants who were coming. All of that began to change in 2014 when we saw the first wave of children arriving alone. Like, do you remember the unaccompanied minors? Um, 2016, 2018, you start to see families arriving, you know, mom, dad, small children in tow, babies. None of these folks fit the profile of somebody who was sneaking in. They were literally coming to the border, seeking protection, seeking relief from persecution, poverty, violence, so many different reasons. So remember, there hasn't been any overhaul of the nation's immigration laws since 1986. There was a small immigration reform in in the 1990s, but nothing like the Immigration um, Reform and Control Act that a Republican president signed that uh, it was bipartisan legislation in 1986. And so the world has changed. The geopolitical realities have changed. And that means the needs of border communities, uh, you know, vis-a-vis the migrants who are arriving have also changed. Um, so fast forward to today, you're in a situation again where, I mean, guys, I was out on the border I mean, I'm out on the border all the time, but when people were lining up and, you know, it was moms with babies in their arms walking through, you know, the cold water of the Rio Grande and just waiting for hours and hours, sometimes overnight. Hi, man. Um, hearing that, you know, you're, you're not the, the, the first, uh, nor will you be the last correspondent that, that has traveled to the border and reported on it. And, you know, it tugs at heartstrings, obviously, as somebody, a Cuban immigrant whose father came here in 1960 to escape what was happening in Cuba. Like it's, it's, it tugs at, at the heartstrings for me personally. I can't speak for Nick. Uh, I'm sure it does because uh, Nick's a human being. Um, but Lauren, I do want to ask you about speaking of another human being, President Biden is, was down at the border visiting uh, border patrol agents and seeing things in El Paso. Then he went over to Mexico City. I want to play something for you real quick. Uh, our friend Mike Emanuel, who hosts Fox News Live, he's the, the chief Washington correspondent for Fox News. He had Governor Asa Hutchinson on the on the uh, Fox News Rundown podcast recently, and he was asking him about President Biden's trip to the southern border. I want you to take a listen to this. Let's react on the other side. Do you worry President Biden's visit to the border is merely a photo opportunity designed to take away criticism coming from Republicans? 
Well, I think it is. Uh, he didn't agree to go down there until the Democrat mayors started uh, complaining about the disastrous border policy of this administration. So that was a wake-up call. But uh, the Republican governors and others have been calling for this kind of uh, border trip or a meeting with uh, governors along the border states uh, for months and months. I would argue if anyone knows publicity stunts at the border, it would be Republicans. So obviously it takes one to know one. But that's just my personal opinion. It's not Lauren Villagrans. But Lauren, what is President Biden? What was he doing at the U.S. southern border and now the subsequent days since since he's gone to Mexico City to meet with the Mexican president? What what has he been doing and why was the trip uh, on President Biden's radar? I think we all know that the U.S.-Mexico border is frequently used as a backdrop for politicians and elected officials. It's It just is all the time, whether it's the wall, whether it's other infrastructure. Um, we in El Paso see politicians, both Republican and Democrat, come here um, to take that photo, right? That was the criticism that it's a photo op. And you hear that criticism about anybody who comes. So, you know, it it may be fair. On the one hand, the Biden administration had actually already announced its policies and Secretary DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has been here many times. He was here just a few weeks ago. I had an opportunity to sit down with him and talk. So he had already reported back to President Biden what was needed. And we saw the announcement last week of, of the new border policies. You know, is it important to see with one's own eyes what, you know, what's going on at a place? I think so. Now, he, he came at a point where, again, immigration is this thing that, you know, the tide rises, the tide ebbs in terms of people arriving at the border, um, how they arrive at the border, et cetera. And he came on a day when, uh, you know, there weren't any migrants left in the county migrant um, aid center that he visited. Uh, there were still migrants on the street. He did not go downtown um, where uh, there are still dozens of migrants who have not been able to, to be sheltered. And, and we can get into that in a little bit of, of why they haven't been able to be sheltered. Um, you know, was it just a photo op? You know, people will have their opinions about that. Um, he did meet with the mayor. He met with the county judge. He met with the congresswoman. Um, he met with the head of our food bank here who is waiting for half a million dollars in federal reimbursement. So I think it depends on who you ask. If you ask, you know, the executive director of the food bank, was it a photo op? I think for her, she would say, I got to tell the president of the United States directly that we need funding for the work that we're doing here. Um, but yeah, he got some photos at the border too. <laughs> and Lauren, on the subject of the president, you know, obviously this is a multi-layered situation and it's not one that's going to be resolved with a, with this current administration, maybe not even the future one, but if you had an opportunity to sit down with the president, members of Congress, and really try to get a sense of where, or rather not even a sense of, but just in your view from where you've sat at the, at the border, the reporting you've done, what would be a, a potential just incremental step to to improve the situation that's going on, potentially improve those who are going through this process of, of you know entering the United States. But in your view, like what small steps could a, a, an administration like the one we have right now in place be able to do to alleviate the situation that's happening? 
That's a really interesting question. I mean, the administration has just taken some important steps. I don't know whether or not, quote unquote, they will work. And, you know, I have this conversation with my editor sometimes, like, what does what will work mean? What I don't even think that as Americans, we have um, we have a solid answer of, of what we're looking for at the border. This is this is a funny thing, but I was looking at the last time um, a president had come to the last times that presidents have come to visit El Paso. And I stumbled upon a visit by President Barack Obama in 2011. And he came and he did a tour very similar to Biden's. He went to the same port of entry. He saw the same kinds of things. This was, you know, more than 10 years ago now. Um, And he gave a speech calling for comprehensive immigration reform. And to listen to that, I I tuned up, I teed it up on on C-SPAN and was listening to it. And it was amazing how different the world already is. And it was amazing what the conversation was even just 10 years ago. The target continually shifts. Um, Republicans have continued to call for the last 10, 12 years for additional border security. It was the same thing they were calling for during the Obama administration that Obama swore he delivered on. More border patrol agents, more technology, more wall, um, all of it. But it's never enough, it seems. Um, and then again, the the needs change, right? So what does border security look like when people aren't trying to sneak over the border? They are presenting and asking for refuge. We don't have a system that answers to that from a federal standpoint. So I'm not qualified, I think, to kind of pitch my ideas about what I think would work, but I can tell you what folks in El Paso say. So for example, um, you know, uh, Representative Veronica Escobar, who is a Democrat uh, in the House, has legislation in asking for humanitarian processing centers at border ports of entry, where people could get in a line and make a claim and a U.S. CIS, a U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services asylum officer or some qualified person could be there to evaluate that claim and people would be in a safe environment. Um, that, you know, variations on that idea have been pitched also by immigrant advocacy groups here. Um, the former Republican mayor of El Paso has, is also on board with that idea. So one thing I can say as a border reporter is that I think that there are a lot of ideas and a lot of answers that can be found in border communities, not just Democrat border communities, but Republican border, you know, Republican led border communities as well. I don't, I mean, history will show that uh, the lawmakers of our great nation don't seem interested in sitting down and coming up with an actual solution to a problem that does win a lot of political points. I'm yeah. shrugging. This is, no. <laughs> this, this is my uh, virtual shrug. <laughs> no, it's very well said. I want to ask you uh, a personal question, uh, but right after I ask you first about title 42, because you were talking about some policies and measures, right? The Supreme court 
upholding Title 42 currently in place that the Biden administration is still utilizing. Um, I want to give our audience a little bit of a refresher on what I know Title 42, obviously, for people that have heard this term, and it was started during the Trump administration with respect to COVID policies and migrants that would be sent back because of healthcare measures. But now with the Supreme Court upholding this, I would love for you to take our audience inside what that policy is still doing, because we've seen an influx, like you just mentioned before. So clearly, um, I'm not sure if the policy is working or not. I turn to you on that front. But also, I saw something with respect to Title 42 expanding specifically to three groups that you mentioned, uh, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Haitians as well. And I would love for you to kind of explain to our audience what that entails. Yeah, so the new border policies are very much a carrot stick. Um, but let's get into Title 42 first. Um, it's kind of amazing to me that that this um, kind of wonky 1944 public health law has now become a household name because of its use at the border. Um, we know it's not really being used anymore for a public health concern. It was originally... Um, you know, invoked during the Trump administration by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, to prevent Border Patrol from holding people in congregate settings. That means like a Border Patrol holding cell. And that, I guess, made sense at the time, right? You didn't want in a global pandemic people crowded in border holding facilities. It's it's widely known that the, the policy continues to, to stay in place for reasons other than public health. Um, and it's been the subject of multiple lawsuits, as you mentioned, one of which has reached the Supreme Court. So the Biden administration is continuing to enforce Title 42, which allows for the quick expulsion of migrants to their country of origin, or in some cases to Mexico. Mexico has agreed to take back multiple nationalities. Um, even before the new policies were introduced, Mexico has been taking back Guatemalans, Hondurans, Salvadorans, um, and under the new border policies, has agreed to take back up to 30,000 people each month from Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Haiti. Those are really big numbers, I think. I mean, more people have come per month than that border-wide, but when you think about Mexican border communities, um, which often suffer from a lack of infrastructure, investment, and are also frequently dangerous places, especially for migrants. Um, you know, you can imagine that if those numbers are met, that it could be really a lot of people and cause a lot of problems. So I think that in border communities, we're going to be watching closely for how that plays out for Mexico. Um, in the policies that the Biden administration announced last week, Mexico agreed to take folks back, right? So we can quickly expel. That means if someone presents at the port, at the um, at the border to a border patrol agent, they're from Venezuela. They can be walked back over the international bridge in a matter of hours, or in some cases, border patrol has actually been holding people and sending them to other cities along the border to make it more difficult for them to come back. That, that's kind of a different story. Okay, so what else did the Biden administration do? It agreed with Mexico to provide up to 30,000 additional visas for people from those countries. So folks can stay in country or in a third country and apply um, to enter the United States to get a visa and not expose themselves to the dangers of the journey north, um, you know, or the, you know, the violence and the dangers of, of Mexican border cities. 
But immigrant advocates say that policy, you know, that, that the offer, it's up to 360,000 new visas this year, um, doesn't recognize the reality that many of these migrants face. Many of them don't have valid passports. You know, they're fleeing countries where getting a passport is a matter like you either need a ton of money to deal with corrupt authorities or you can't afford it or the you know the government is essentially collapsed so will they be able to wait and download an app and make the application and have all their documents in a row people who are fleeing for their lives don't necessarily have that luxury that's the criticism mexico lauded the policy said it was the largest expansion in labor mobility in the region in recent memory. I I was really taken aback by how positive Mexico was about this, given the number of people that they've agreed to take back each month from from these countries that, um, you know, that are, these are folks from who are not Mexican, right? Um, Who they either have to integrate or deport. So, you know, it's brand new. This just got uh, authorized last week. And I think we're going to have to see in the coming weeks and months what effect it has on, you know, um, hemispheric migration. Lauren, before we let you go, um, a while back when you were on the program last time to talk about things happening at the southern border, we had maybe a subsequent episode afterwards where we started to do some fan feedback on the air, read in uh, listener emails. And one of the emails mentioned you specifically in the episode we were covering at the time and how partisan sounding the journalists you had on from El Paso sounded. Now, I wanted to, in isolation, and I said on the episode at the time, that sounds like a you problem to the listener because of your ears and what you're hearing maybe from whatever it is, whatever silo or or ecosystem, echo chamber that you're listening to with respect to podcasts, news channels, et cetera. Um, but you do such a great job. You know how, how much we, we, we admire your work that you're doing. I've seen you on CNN and C-SPAN and a bunch of other places covering this stuff. But you also live down there, right? You're also, you've mentioned last time on the episode, a 10-minute walk. You're at the border all the time. You could cross over to Mexico in 10 minutes. Um, how tough is that, the, the personal side of this, covering this story, knowing that you live and work in the territory, and then seeing feedback like that where... It's partisan, but you're a journalist. You're covering this stuff. What would you say to somebody that would be listening to this program that would hear Lauren Villagran covering uh, things happening at the southern border? Do you feel you're covering it in a partisan way? You know, I get a lot of emails because I'm an immigration reporter, and that word immigration generates a lot of emotions. Uh, The border is... um, is a place that that has been built up in the imagination of Americans as um, a place that for a lot of people uh, really embodies their fears about what America is becoming demographically. Um, you know, the, the, the place where two nations come together is, is a foreign place for a lot of people. You know, I live here and I think people who live on the border aren't afraid of the border. Um, that doesn't mean that everybody is in favor of letting everybody who shows up at the border in or keeping everybody who shows up at the border out. I think that border residents generally, again, in communities that may lean Republican, that may lean Democrat, you've seen the 
the purple nature of the Texas borderland in elections recently, um, regardless of party. What I do think it's fair to say is that you will find on the border people who are more interested in the logistics and the practicality of border enforcement and immigration and are maybe less caught up in the emotion around it. Um, but, uh, you know, I get a lot of mail, as I said, and I can tell you that as many emails as I might get that are sometimes filled with hate towards me or hate towards immigrants, um, I also get emails from people who are, you know, touched by the very same story that somebody feels angry about. So it's, it really, really, I think, depends on your lens. And the thing that I try to do in my work, I don't believe that in, in, in journalism, you can always achieve the perfect 50-50 balance of perspective. But what I try to do is in my body of work over time, address myriad issues that are important to a range of perspectives. So for example, I have been covering in recent weeks um, asylum seekers who are coming this way. Coming up, stay tuned, I'm gonna be looking at trends in ICE detention and try to um, investigate the administration's claims around expedited removal, that you know they're going to be removing people who don't qualify for asylum quickly. So I will be looking at that. Um, and I, you know, I hope that, while I certainly can't please all readers, um, that I do try to strike a balance. And uh, thankfully, I have earned the trust both of um, immigrant advocates in, in El Paso and elsewhere, and also the Border Patrol. I mean, I talk to Border Patrol agents on a, on a daily basis, and they talk to me. So um, yeah, I don't know what to say to your listener. <laughs> other than to keep reading and keep watching and um and uh and hopefully we can all learn things from each other you got a couple things to say but no, no no nick uh, that <laughs> no, will sorry, be you've been quiet <laughs> yeah, no, no, i made nick be quiet on purpose uh that's for the patreon uh lauren you do fantastic work you know that here you have a home here we give a home here to journalists that are covering it, or we talk to people who know what they're talking about. Lauren Biagran, you could check out her work at the El Paso Times. She knows what she's talking about with respect to everything happening at our U.S. southern border. Lauren, can't thank you enough for coming on the program. Continue success to you, and please stay safe. Yeah, thank you both. Take care. Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. Our thank yous there to Lauren via Grand El Paso Times. Check out all of her work over at ElPasoTimes.com. A lot of great insight there. Nick, as we sign off here, real quick on the border. I mean, she mentioned it there. It's a human story, man. Human story. When I see these images of these folks sitting out there in El Paso freezing, and she mentioned a lot of them don't have sponsors. They just come in here. They just come in here. For a better opportunity, man, they're risking it all, like my family risked it all, leaving Cuba in 1960 to come here. You got nobody here, and they're doing this. I'm, I'm, 
I just don't know why we don't look at things sometimes from a human level. And like she mentioned too, well, now you get into like the legal realm, right? Because what's going to happen administratively now, what our house Republicans going to do with respect to the law real quick, are your takeaways from, from Lauren? You know, the, the, I want to be careful because I, I tend, I tend to say that when that's brought up, like the founding of this country and that connotes, you know, people who weren't originally here coming here and founding it. It's not true, obviously. Um, but even if you go back to those who first arrived here, you know, they came from somewhere else. Th- this land is essentially just a place for safe haven for people, you know, prior to the founding of the United States, and it will continue to be so. Um, and it's sad that it's, it is very upsetting because we are very we tend to pick and choose, you know, the the immigrants that we want to, you know, label as a threat, as you've talked about on our show, you know, Rick's show, obviously about about fentanyl. Um, you know, one thing that the one thing that really stood out though in that conversation with Laura with Lauren was the framing of humanitarian versus security. You know, those two very important lenses when we talk about that. And I really appreciate it because, you know, going forward in, in conversations with friends, family, and then just anyone who wants to talk about the show and, you know, the, um, you know, what goes on in, in the conversation about immigration, it's an important lens to offer people. Like, which way do you want to look at this? And, and I do believe that, you know, there is a way to consider both. You know, one thing that was really enlightening was the way she interchangeably talked about you know, these two different ways to think about what's going on when we talk about the southern border and like she doesn't have an answer to it. You don't. I don't. Clearly, most politicians don't. But it is important to view these different ways You know that we consider what goes on the border. And, and I'm very grateful for that. And it, it helps me, you know, going forward in conversations with others. No, it's why we have her on. It's why we have people on the show who know what they're talking about. So you can go to El Paso Times. Check out all the great work that local journalists are definitely doing down in Texas, like Lauren. Uh, Our thank yous to her for coming on the program. Video of the interview with Lauren up on our YouTube channel. Type in Can We Please Talk podcast. Hit the subscribe button for me. Audio podcast platforms. You know them by now. Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to the folks over on Good Pods that tune in and listen to us each and every week. Acast is our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. Can't do it without each and every one of you that listens into this program. We appreciate it each and every week. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And like Mike, the proud son of immigrants, I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.